Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. You do like me. I don't. You liked me yesterday. Oh, did I? Yeah. I thought you did. Adam, we loved Colin Farrell and the Banshees of Inisherin, but that was last year. Do we still love him now that it's Oscar season? Are we rowing, Josh? Are you trying to start a row? <laughs> this week, we will talk Oscars, and I won't do it with an Irish accent. Our picks for who will win, who should win, and who should have been nominated. Colin Farrell may qualify for all three of those categories. Joining us, the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips. We liked him yesterday. We like him today. Mm-hmm. We're going to like him tomorrow. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. We're gearing up for the Oscars this week. We'll share our picks for lead and supporting actor and actress, plus best director and picture. We will also kick off the ninth annual Film Spotting Madness, our bracket style elimination tournament this year. It's the best of the 1960s, 2001, Psycho, The Apartment, Lawrence of Arabia, so many more great films, all competing for the chance to be crowned the best film of that great film decade. And our special guest this week will now sing the theme song for this year's tournament with music composed by Michel Legrand. Michael Phillips, welcome to Film Spotting. Thank you. Uh, I, I'd like to nominate myself as um, best of 1960s since i was that's my decade are you are you in the bracket i well i don't know i i i i looked in vain i saw a bunch of cockamamie you know like this against that but i but i didn't Mm -hmm. see uh, michael phillips born in the year of the hustler i did not see that you didn't see that i think we're actually going to rename the tournament to a bunch of cockamamie this versus that (laughs) it's catchy And that is the oldest man thing I've said on the show. Like, and that says a lot. (laughs) And that is, that is saying something, Michael. (laughs) Quickly, it's our weekly reminder to help us reach new listeners by leaving us a five-star rating and positive review. Yeah, this week we want to thank Alex A., who left some kind words for us on Apple Podcasts this week. Share your rating or review on Apple Podcasts. You can also do it on Spotify if you listen there. It does always help us find new listeners. Let's get to the Oscars, and it's always a big show when we have Michael from the Chicago Tribune joining us. Quick pop quiz, since 
time is a flat circle and all of these years just blend together. Mm. Just name me one, guys. Just name me one Oscar winner from last year. Can oh, you man. Did uh, Co- Eve- no. Yeah, that, that's what I was, <laughs> was remembering, Michael. Did Coda win Best Picture? Coda. Coda did win Best Picture. You, yeah. you succeeded. You won our little game show here. We also saw wins by, very memorably, Will Smith, Jessica Chastain for The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Troy Kotzer won for Best Supporting Actor for Coda, and Ariana DeBose for Best Supporting Actress. So good in Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. Before we get into our picks, I did think it might be fun to go back and look at how we've done with these prediction shenanigans oh over the years. Oh. Not that we not that we pride ourselves in any way on being awards prognosticators, but I figured it wouldn't hurt. Let's why see not, how we've why done. Why not undermine the premise of this entire episode right at the top? <laughs> it could hurt. What do you mean it could hurt? Point. It could hurt. Great point. And, and when you hear the results, you're going to be crying shenanigans, Josh, because you're going to think I had this planned all along. But I look mm. back at 2022, a year ago. Michael, I think you were blow drying your hair. You didn't join us for that one. But Josh and I were in lockstep. We picked the same who will win for five of the six categories, and we correctly called five of the six categories. We differed on best picture. I said Power of the Dog. You said Kenneth Branagh's Belfast would take it. We were both wrong because it was Coda, as we said. Now, in 2021, Michael, you were with us. I got four out of six right. You, Michael, got four out of six right. Josh, do you remember how you did in 2021? I'm sure I didn't remember what I picked an hour after the show. So, no. (laughs) You were one of six. Hey. One of six. You got Chloe Zhao for director. But in addition to picking Chadwick Boseman and Viola Davis incorrectly, we all three did that because, of course, Anthony Hopkins and Francis McDormand won the lead prizes. You also thought that Sasha Baron Cohn would win Best Supporting Actor for Trial of the Chicago 7. You went with Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah. Best Supporting Actress. Again, not your pick, who you thought the Academy would pick. And you went with Mank for Best Picture because, you know, it's the movie about Hollywood. And what I've noticed looking back on these predictions, Josh, is you're the one of us who actually watches the Oscars and kind of gets into it. But you're by far the more cynical and jaded. Oh, you're absolutely. always assuming they're going to they're going to air with the movie that's about them. All those predictions follow that logic. I will probably continue to do so on this episode. I think even Adam, you know, my Belfast prediction was wrong, but I was heading the right direction, right? They went with a crowd-pleasing, sentimental choice. I have since seen Coda, I should say, and like it. It's a fine picture. But yeah, Power of the Dog, that's where my heart was, but I knew Mm -hmm. that's not where the Academy's logic was. I just, you know, I took the detour, just the wrong detour, I guess. So now we know that when we get to Best Picture later in the show, Josh is going with The Fablements. Go back one more year, 2020. Michael, you joined us again for that. Josh, four out of six. A little better, of course. Michael, four out of six. But like 2022, I got five out of six. The one I was wrong about was, again, best picture. Josh, you were the only one of the three of us that correctly predicted Parasite winning the prize. Good call, Michael and I thought it would be... Thank you. Michael, we thought it would be 1917. That was my cynicism because I I did not like that film, yeah. 
And see, that year I was not cynical. That year I went with pretty much what I'd like to have seen. So maybe I've learned something. Take a lesson. I might have to rework my list here before we get to Best Picture. So in summary, because I know we have some math majors out there, Josh Larson, 55%, Michael Phillips, 67%, Adam Kempinar, 78%. I mean, Adam, I'm just glad whatever reason I can give you to go to sleep with a smile on your face. That's right. I know you need these things. I do. 85% of the show is constructed to allow these things to fall into place for you. So I'm happy for you. It's so great. That Thank so, you. It's, that was the, the score I got in I don't my high school you. geometry class, 78. Mm-hmm. I got a 78. 78. And I felt That's... I felt just as queasy about that as you were beating me out on these Oscar <laughs> predictions. So, yeah. Well, let's get into those Oscar predictions. Let's see if any of us can better our past performance. We are beginning with Best Supporting Actress, Angela Bassett, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Hong Chow, The Whale, Carrie Condon, The Banshees of Inna Sharon, Jamie Lee Curtis, and Stephanie Hsu, both nominated for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. The way we do this, we are going to try to predict who will win, but the more fun part is telling you who we think should win, and possibly even more fun than that, who we would replace and who we would replace them with. Let's start with will win and should win. Michael Phillips. I'm going to I'm going to go it's not entirely cynical but I'm going to go with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis I think uh will win. It's it, that's based just statistically on her winning the SAG Screen Actors Guild award over the weekend. Um you know, will win. It's I I uh, I'm thinking it's probably a close call among the vast Oscar pool of voters between uh Jamie Lee Curtis and Carrie Condon for the Banshees of uh, in Sharon. But I, I think it's going to be Jimmy Lee Curtis. So should win. Um, I would actually go Condon for Banshees. I don't really love, and I don't love Banshees, especially on a second viewing, but I, I, hmm. I, I like it. I do think that there's no, unquestionably, she's kind of the, the, the source of warmth in that film that that film desperately needs. And that, and McDonough's the first, Martin McDonough's the, the first to admit it, I think. And she's also just a splendid actress. Uh, and new to a lot of people and just, you know, she's great. The acting is very good. Mm-hmm. She's, I don't know if you know, I don't know if you know that guys, the acting is pretty good. In <laughs> we did detect pretty that. solid, pretty solid. So that's my, that's my, uh, should win Carrie Condon. My will win is Jamie Lee Curtis. Josh, what about you? So I like the Jamie Lee Curtis logic. I'm going to follow it, but go with, uh, a different actor here and say Angela Bassett. And I probably should be paying more attention to SAG Awards and stuff like that. I know those are good indicators. I also look at past Oscar relationships when it comes to the nominees. And, uh, you know, I look at Angela Bassett, see nominated once before for What's Love Got to Do With It but didn't win. Um, The Academy does love to honor a long and storied career, and hopefully Angela Bassett has many, many movies ahead of her, but she's got a ton behind her as well that she's always been respected um, as an actor. And so I could see this being something possibly of a career award, even though I think she's fantastic in the film. But but that same logic could sort of apply to Jamie Lee Curtis. So you might be right there, Michael. I'm going to say Angela Bassett. And as far as should win, I'm also with you, Carrie Condon. I could easily make that pick, but I'm going to choose slightly over her just because it registered more strongly with me right on first viewing is Hong Chow in The Whale. I think she's on par with Brendan Fraser in that movie in terms of bringing a sense of dignity to what is a dicey story, let's say. She plays the the friend and caretaker to Brendan Fraser's character. 
you can really feel both her love for him and her anger at him. And I think Hong Chao balances that beautifully. So that's my should win. Can I add one thing too? If if Hong Chao were nominated for the menu, not a film I love, but Hong Chao, mm-hmm. very funny and completely, I mean, really unearingly sharp in, in the kind of comic tone she's striking, then I would, she would be my should win. Can I help you, sir? <clears throat> yeah, what, what the hell are these? These are tortillas. Tortillas deliciosas. Yeah, so what, what are these? These are tortillas, which contain Echo Bright's tax records and other documents showing how your company has created invoices with fake charges. How did you get these? I'm sorry, but Chef never reveals his recipes. The whale, I mean, she's good in the whale. I just, I have such yeah. problems with the whale that I can't, I can barely see past the problems to the performances. I'm going to split the difference between you guys here. I'm going to go with Michael and say, I think ultimately Jamie Lee Curtis will win for everything, everywhere, all at once, though my runner-up choice there, or who I think is going to be the toughest competition, is Angela Bassett for Wakanda Forever. And I was really wrestling with this choice for who should win, either Hong Chao for The Whale or Carrie Condon for The Banshees of Inna Sharon. They were both my top two supporting actresses when we did our best performances of the year in December, Josh, and when we submitted our Chicago Film Critics Association ballots. I like your use of the word warmth when talking about Carrie Condon. I think it applies to Hong Chao as well, though they both are characters with some real fierceness to them and some real rawness. They are also both the voices of reason and the voices of the audience in a way, I think, in their respective films. They're connected to these morbid men, these arguably selfish men, and they both carry really heavy burdens and they make sacrifices, but they don't they don't do it in a way where they're just suffering martyrs either. They push and they fight and they're vulnerable, but they're also really powerful. I love both performances and I'll admit that I'm more inclined as I sit here right now to suggest Condon should win simply because that performance and Banshees overall is so much more fun to think about than The Whale. And I like The Whale a lot more than you, Michael. But if I have to pick, I'm going to stick with who I had as number one in December. And it was Hong Chao. Michael, that brings us to who you would replace if you had the power. You could go back in time, take someone out, give us that name, and give us the nominee you'd replace them with. Gosh, this is awful. I, I uh, The irony for me is that I would replace Jamie Lee Curtis uh, with Jesse Buckley from Women Talking. Uh, hmm. And that, I mean, there's, I can give you four or five. I would pop in there. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think... Kristen Stewart in, in the Cron- David Cronenberg film, Crimes of the Futures. That was the strangest, wittiest performance I saw all year, I think. Nobody saw the film, meaning plenty of film spotting listeners saw the film, but in, mm-hmm. in the scheme of things, nobody saw. But uh, Jesse Buckley, I think, is just um, just kind of a stunningly authentic and uh, straight-ahead communicator to the camera in a way, and just all kinds of material and She's just got, she's just got it. And she's, I mean, everybody's good in women talking, but I had, if I had a single anybody, I'd be Jesse Buckley. Yep. Is this really how we are to decide the fates of all the women in this colony? Just another vote where we put an X next to our position? I thought we were here to do more than that. You mean talk more about forgiving the men and doing nothing? Everything else is insane, but none of you will listen to reason. Why are you here with us? 
Why are you still here with us if that is what you believe? Just leave with the rest of the do-nothing women. She is my daughter, and I want her here with us. All right, and Jamie Lee Curtis is out. Okay. Oh, she's out. She's dead to me. (laughs) (laughs) I know, this is such a a cruel exercise in a lot of ways. I, I think I would put in, let's start positively, I would put in Guslaji Malanga from Saint-Omer, the mother on trial in that Alice Diop film for killing her infant. And she's so still, she's so quiet on the stand that she's somewhat of a Rorschach test character for the audience, for us, for the courtroom, but also for us as viewers. Yet at the same time, Malanga manages to make her this fully individualized human being. It's a very tricky act she pulls off there in serving the movie in two ways. Um, not realistic, a very small film, um, you know, a good film made my top 10, but but still not realistic that the Academy would look in that direction. But still, if I had that power, if I had the power we're granting ourselves, that's where I would go. And this is going to be, you know, not well received. This is something I've kind of kept quiet. I may have mentioned to you, Adam, um, you know, off recording at some point, talking about everything everywhere all at once. I'm not the hugest fan of Stephanie Hsu's performance in that. I really like her in the domestic scenes with Michelle Yeoh. So the straightforward drama where they're interacting, having their issues, that confrontation between them. I think she's wonderful. In both times I've watched the film, I just feel like there's a there's something missing when she turns to play the supervillain scenes. There's that's asking for a big charismatic presence that I think she has maybe like 85% of in those multiverse sequences. And I felt like pushing them over the top might have been a different performer. So again, I think she's good in the film. This is not to say it's a bad performance at all. Um, but if I did have to take someone out, it would probably be her. I know other people love her performance. Uh, they love her as a performer. So yeah, this, uh, this part of the exercise always feels bad, but if I had to remove somebody, it would be her. Well, as long as we're being honest, then I think I have to say that, Michael, I'm not the biggest fan of Jesse Buckley's performance in Women Talking. And I don't think- What the hell did you just say? I know. I didn't think I would ever decry (laughs) or demean in any way a Jesse Buckley performance. She is simply one of our best screen performers. But there's there's a one-noteness to that performance that I didn't think Jesse Buckley was capable of, but- I felt on screen right, in that film right. anyway. I was, about, so, I was just about to say, you really broke down you know, your points <laughs> earlier very well, but now I'm, I, I don't feel so yeah, good about it. Yeah, less so now. Yeah. <laughs> well, can I say first, nice work, Academy. I don't have a lot of complaints about this category or a few others. Not only did I have Chow and Condon at the top of my list, as I said, but I also had Jamie Lee Curtis and Stephanie Hsu on my list. So the lone exception, I guess if I had to remove someone – It would be Angela Bassett, even though she's very good and she's almost surely the best thing about Wakanda Forever. But a performance I did like more was a performance that I actually think in its movie is a lead performance. And both, quote unquote, lead performances in this movie got overlooked. But it's the woman king and it would be Tuso Mbedu. She was being put forth by the studio, all the publicity, it was all about her for supporting, and I understand why. When you've got Viola Davis, I know the movie's called The Woman King, and Davis is great, as she always is. But Mbedu, I think, is really the movie's lead. She's the heart of that film, and she's someone who I've seen before, but after seeing her in The Woman King, sign me up for anything that she might be working on next. That brings us to supporting actor. 
The nominees are Brendan Gleeson for The Banshees of Inisherin, Brian Tyree Henry Causeway, Judd Hirsch for The Fablemans, Barry Kagan for The Banshees of Inisherin, and Kiwei Kwan for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Michael, who will and who should win? Yeah. Yeah, I think Key Wei Kwan will win for everything, everywhere, all at once, and it's a great win. I think. I think uh, over the weekend, if you saw the SAG Awards, it was just kind of a wonderful scene to see three generations of talent up there, at least three. Um, just, just really, I think rightly so, just kind of enjoying their success in this in this thing that is a success every which way. You know, I mean, it's not a film. I, don't, I really am eager to see it a year from now and see how I, I respond to it because uh, there's something about the ner- the nervous system of the movie that that hit me differently the two times I've seen it. Um, and I don't know how it's going to look in a year, if it's going to look a little sort of stridently exhausting or whatever it is. And I think, Josh, I made it, that sort of quality of the film it may have not brought out the best instincts in every performer to your point about who you would ding from the, from the supporting actress ranks. But, um, I, I think, I think, uh, Quan is wonderful in it and, and his instincts are wonderful. I think that, uh, he, he can match every I- direction, impulse, uh, stylistic plane. This movie keeps throwing at everybody. Um, so he's very, I think he's a, so he will win, I think. Um, and I, I think he should, but I think it's a tie. If you had a tie with anybody, Barry Kagan, frankly, for Banshees. Uh, and again, I'm almost surprised at my own answer there because I, I, it's not a film that ended up on my top 10 Banshees, but when I look at the individual performances, that's, it has the stuff of timelessness. Um, I don't, the film itself, I don't, I'm not sure about, but I think those performances, everybody, but uh, Condon and Kagan, I think that's just kind of a masterclass in how to make the most of every line you have. Uh, so that's that's my pick. All right. As far as who will win, I, th- I think my guess is we're going to all share the prediction of Kiwe Kwan. Uh, again, you know, for me, Michael, you spoke very well to what he's bringing to the actual performance. If I'm looking behind the scenes here, what's been happening during award season. I think the off screen story more than anything else will guarantee this win. I mean, his, his performance is great, but those reunion photos with Spielberg throughout this season, that might be what gets him the Oscar, right? Just the, the warmth we feel when we see them together and uh, combined with the lovely performance, I think will guarantee a win for him. I do think he should win it as well. It's he he's sort of the husband you don't fantasize about, but the husband you might actually want in the movie, though. I will also say he dresses up pretty nice in that whole sequence. That's kind of a Wong Kar Wai homage. So he just does so many different things, serves so many different needs in a movie that is asking its performers. And I think that's, you know, that's why he and Michelle Yeoh ended up so high on my year end rankings and votings that movie is asking its performers to do so much so many different styles um, so many different emotional beats and registers it's asking them to act in you know as the title implies multiple films and they manage those two particularly manage to do it in every single scene so he would be my should win as well i'm not your husband I'm another version of one from another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today. Uh, hold tight to help you. 
across the multiverse. I've seen thousands of Evelyns. You can access all of their memories, their emotions, even their skills. There's a great evil spreading throughout the many verses. And you may be your only chance of stopping it. Don't make me fight you. I am really good. Yeah, this is another one where I can't complain too much. My one and two got nominated, and one of those two was Kiwi Kwan. I'll be thrilled when he wins, because I agree with you. I think he will. But if I was handing out the statue, my prize would go to Brian Tyree Henry, who it seems has the lowest odds of winning of any of the nominees. For him, I think the nomination is the prize here, but it's been really rewarding over the past month or so to hear from people who sought out this film because of my recommendation and the fact that I highlighted both Henry's performance and Jennifer Lawrence's performance on the show. You know, it's only available, I think, still on Apple TV or Apple TV Plus. So many people just did not have this film on their radar at all. And it's unfortunate because they both are really fantastic in it. And I was trying to think in a word or two what it is about Brian Tyree Henry that makes him so mesmerizing as an actor. And I think it's his unpredictability. Not that there's anything manic about him or chaotic about his character here or his approach to his characters. It's really the opposite. There's a heavy reliance on stillness. But there's still this mischievousness about him that I love, this really sly sense of humor, even when he's playing characters who may be suffering or withholding a lot of emotion. And I think he might be. Here's my bold proclamation. Brian Tyree Henry might be the most exciting listener in the movies (laughs) right now. I am totally content to just watch him listen to other great performers like Jennifer Lawrence, but he has a lot to do with that character as well in the movie Causeway. So I would give it to him if I could, but again, we'll be very happy if Ki Wei Kwan wins. You know what allows Brian Tyree Henry to have that unpredictability for me, too, because I did catch up with Causeway. And I think this is one of the silver linings of the Oscars, right? Causeway is getting attention because it got this nomination. And I so thought it was me. I thought well, it was more I, me, really. I shouldn't, have said spotting, that. But... I shouldn't have said that, Adam. It, it is you. Yes. <laughs> uh, it, it's all you. Uh, but it's what allows him to have that unpredictability for me, especially in this movie, at least, though he's been great in everything I've seen him in, is he takes his time. There's Mm -hmm. a patience. And so, yeah, it's not a manic unpredictability where he keeps you on edge, but by allowing that space to open up, his characters are able to go in a multitude of directions. And as you wait for him, Mm -hmm. that's the suspense that's built in. That's what he did. I think when I wrote about Causeway, I I described it as um, he waits for the movie to come to him and not many actors do that. A lot of actors are chasing the movie or chasing the scene. And sometimes that can be good too, you know, when you have the, a take charge performance. That doesn't mean that's always bad, but he strikes me as a performer who is going to sit in the middle and let that scene mold itself around what he's doing, mm-hmm. which is allows for good listening, as you say, allows for him to play listeners and allows for Jennifer Lawrence, who is also excellent in this movie, giving one of her best performances, I think, to work at a calmer register as well. So they are so good 
together in Causeway. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad to see that the Academy did give him some attention. I, I caught up with that yesterday. I saw Causeway really? yesterday. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the last two or three things I needed to see before, you know, the honor of being invited back for the Oscars, despite my percentages on the guesswork. <laughs> um, well, it's better than Josh's. You know, Henry's great. I mean, another thing about Henry, you, you, you kind of can't help but notice after good performance after good performance after good performance. I mean, he can he can take a piece of junk like Bullet Train and figure out actually how to get laughs and heart and not make you sick in the process mm-hmm. out of material that has no interest in quality. But but just I mean, it, it gives people an opportunity to really go nuts or find their find the gold if they can mm-hmm. find it. Uh, but he does every time. I think that's a great point about the listening. Um, and that's it's not just the key to acting. It's also what it's actors are at the mercy of a director and an editor about how much they can listen in a movie. Great point. Uh, and that's my one complaint about Causeway, which I do think the performances transcend and make worth seeing for sure. But they don't get a lot of, or to my taste, enough footage where uh, where Henry and Jennifer Lawrence are really sharing this the the, the shot and the scene. And letting it really? play out. I, I, that's my memory of it. Yeah. And it's, wow, it's okay. only a 48 hour old memory. So I'm not sure, but well, it's fresher. It's fresher than mine. I I'm just surprised by that. Cause I think back of that movie and I think of the two of them sitting next to each other for long. Yes. That's periods of time. A, but there's yeah. an awful lot of close-ups of, is of it a lot of single your, your shots? Is, a lot of huh. singles and not and, two shots, you know, it's effective. Yes. Be why, why do you not even question it when you're watching it? Because the actors are so good. Um, but it's it's I feel the same way about Causeway as I do about Two Leslie, which I saw a few months ago, um, and in that I think the material is pretty good, very tidy, awfully schematic, and yet there's this living, breathing sort of performance or performances in the uh, in the middle of it that, that make it you know worth talking about on an on a on an Oscar show. You noted, Josh, that this exercise of nominating someone who didn't get nominated and replacing someone feels a little cruel. But of course, I will note for listeners, especially if they're new to this Oscar show on Film Spotting, it does come from a positive place. It's more for us about highlighting a performance that otherwise maybe isn't getting enough attention. And we do like to put that practical restriction on us, if you will, that it's easy to say these 17 people should have got nominations or these 17 films should have got nominations. But if it really comes down to it, okay. You got to make the tough choice. Who are you taking out? So with that said, Michael, make the tough choice. Who are you taking out and who are you putting in? Who am I taking out of best supporting actor? Judd Hirsch in the Fablemans. You know, I like the Fablemans a lot. Uh, if it was most supporting actor, I'd, I'd vote for Judd Hirsch. It's just, but it's <laughs> yeah. best. And it's, I think that's an, that's the, the one tin ear bit of writing I can, I, I, in Tony Kushner's screenplay that I, I think is just, it, it's just so self-consciously what it is, which is a turn for, you know, this this one character who enters the film, kind of redirects the energy of the thing and sort of makes a big impact on the young protagonist. And then mm-hmm. it's um, fine in theory, I, I, a little a little tiring in practice. So I, I, uh, Judd Hurst, I wouldn't, it's not really his fault, really, but... Uh, and it's weird because I like I like so many aspects of the film so much. It's uh, it's it's a heartbreaking to say. So I really resent this whole exercise of me now being accused of ageism because he's the oldest <laughs> mm-hmm. nominee. So there you go. I I ditch him, and you know who I'd throw in? You know who I'd throw in? 
a film I didn't like. So what's up with my okay. personality? Pedro Pascal in The Unbearable Weight of Oh, Massive I love talent. it. Nice. And that's only because I am a late, the latest guy, the latest latecomer to Pascal's real comic skill. You know, just, I mean, just watching him single-handedly revive Saturday Night Live for 90 minutes to actually get, you know, every single laugh and 15 that weren't scripted <laughs> in every sketch. You know, um, he can kind of, tamp it down for things like uh, I've seen three or four episodes of the last of us. And, uh, you know, I, I, I thought uh, just watching him not just sort of keep up with cage, but just, you know, zoom him every which way in that film, which I've already forgotten except for him. Uh, uh, I just, you know, uh, it's my, it's the old prejudice against comedy most years at the Oscars even still. And I, I I'd throw him in there along with, I could give you five other, I could give you five others, but the, he's my guy. He's my guy. What is this? Like a, a little, um, Stanislavski improv thing? Well, you can stop. Stanislavski, is he part of the resistance? Stop! I am your guest! Gabriella ripped the bedspread off me this morning. Now you're sending me on like a wild goose chase! I'm sorry, but you can't quit acting. You can't! That's none of your business. Whether you like it or not, you have a gift. And that gift brings light and joy to an increasingly dark and broken world. And to turn your back on that gift is to turn your back on the entire human race. Human race? I'm afraid so. I'll just remind listeners that Michael just kicked out Judd Hirsch and he previously kicked out Jamie Lee Curtis, age 64. So AARP is going to be sending us some hate mail. Michael Phillips, Josh. This is Your not banks. looking good, Michael. I would love to join you in Pedro Pascal. I, I'm almost convinced to do that. He was probably the person I would slot in after who I am going to go with. And it's Justin H. Min uh, from After Yang playing the techno sapien there. I think that's the term, but who also has this eye for beauty in the everyday. It's just, I've said Great this before film. on the show. I think these, these roles where, you know, whether it's robots or some sort of artificial intelligence, something like that, I think... They're assumed to be easy, and um, when you see a performance like this, you realize that there are also other layers than just being something than other human in an, in an obvious way. So Justin H. Min for me, though I like the Pedro Pascal choice, I'm with you. I can't make fun of you too much for kicking out Judd Hirsch. I think I'm going to have to do the same, Michael, though. I think he was maybe a little bit more fun and maybe, you know, Spielberg is never going to completely get rid of that. There's always going to be something in every movie of his, I feel like, is going to be just there to to please the audience, to please the mainstream theater audience, theatrical multiplex audience who are going to come out and say, you know, oh, but the funniest bit was Judd Hirsch, right? Because it's going to work. In that way, I think it does. I think it works well enough. I don't think it sidetracked the movie entirely for me, but I very much would agree it does not deserve to be one of the five best supporting actor nominated performances from last year. It's funny about Spielberg. Yeah. I mean, he admits he's not particularly good with comedy. I mean, he, he he said it a million times over after 1941, which is God knows a different kind of comedy that he just didn't have any skill for it, which is refreshingly honest, but. Um, it's odd just because he's got so much wit as a visual filmmaker. I mean, the psychic, mm. I mean, my favorite example would be like close encounters where you, you know, the car comes up behind Roy Neary and then he just waves him around and then mm -hmm. yeah. the UFO shows up and it goes mm -hmm. straight up. I mean, that's just like brilliant visual comedy. You, and 
he's got it uh, every which way, but he's got it when he has to kind of deliver an old fashioned show stopping turn, there's just something a little pushy about it. It just feels a little like the timing isn't quite right. And the camera's not quite where it mm-hmm. should be. Anyway, that's that. I hope Judd Hirsch isn't a film spotting listener. He won't be anymore. I'm making it three for three. Oh, Our boy. listeners couldn't see what? us nodding vigorously wow. during your comments, Michael, but I'm completely with you. And I'll say it in case he is listening or any family members. Love Judd Hirsch. One Oscar Love nomination him. prior, best supporting actor, deservedly for ordinary people 40 years ago. And I understand, I guess, the function of what really is his scene in The Fablemans. You said it, Michael. It's it's pretty much there to be exactly what it is. I saw an interview with Hirsch where he put it this way. He's like an oracle who says, you will pursue your passions. You won't be able to do anything but that. And even though you will, you will face such struggle. But both the size of the performance itself, I agree with you about the most acting, and the scene seemed gratuitous to me. That revelation is one I think Sammy was well on his way to discovering on his own already. I really appreciate both the film and Tony Kushner's writing as well, Michael. And I appreciate enough to consider that maybe I'm wrong about this. I've only seen the Fablemans that one time, and maybe there's some, some layer, something I'm not peeling back that makes it better. But right now, my recollection of that scene is just thinking it was totally heavy handed and superfluous. So Judd's gone I really considered your choice, Josh, because Justin H. Min for After Yang was in my top five on my critics ballot. But I had someone ahead of him, and I know that I am not going to get any support from the Babylon haters here <gasps> Wait, I'm sorry. as we I, I, record I, I, something in my, I, I, this something episode. Something in my throat there. Sorry. Uh-huh. uh-huh. But I would give the nod to Brad Pitt. Adam, it's, it's too late very... for you to be Brad Pitt's friend. You're on no. the record. It's too late. It's not going to happen. So I've been so hard on Pitt over 18 you, years you of film puff spotting. Up, you know, mediocre I'm to late make up career for performances all you want. He's not going to call you. Brad is all about acknowledging your weaknesses and growth and evolving as a human being. He would appreciate this. Look, it's a very different performance in a very different movie than the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. But what we see with his character in Babylon, Jack Conrad, I believe is his name, this matinee idol, is his unrivaled charisma, that pure physical presence, and and a world weariness that gives Babylon some emotional depth. I think he's the only part of that film that is giving it any emotional depth. I'm not saying it's his best performance or that it's even necessarily as good as that one, but as far as Jack Conrad being a role Pitt seemed destined to play, I just don't know who else could have done that role justice. I know I said that, Josh, with you back in December when we were outlining our favorite performances of the year. But maybe someone like Cruz would be fun to see in that role riffing on his own persona a little bit. Maybe. But otherwise, Pitt seems like the guy, the only guy that could have done it. That's a. I think that's a. That's a dopey observation. Adam. <laughs> I, I, I just well, Brad used what? to play a lot of dopey roles. So. Well, I, I, okay, here's my here's my resistance point with Brad Pitt in that role in that film. I I don't. There's a there's a certain kind, and it's in a lot of the the, the attempt. The attempt is there in the writing. 
now and then to kind of capture some of the argot and the and the rhythm and the syntax and the some of the slang a little too heavy-handed um of of the time and i i don't think there's anything in brad pitt as an actor who can succeed that can successfully visit that time and place and make me think he's an actor who's struggling to kind of figure out this new medium of sound and all the rest of it um I just don't feel like there's any kind of like sort of uh, high comedy, medium comedy, uh, anything going on that, that suggests a, 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 an actor or performer of that time and place. He just, he just feels like wood to me, <laughs> you know, hmm. it's a, it's just kind of wooden. And, and, uh, so I guess I don't think it's an opinion I'm having. I think I'm just stating a fact. <laughs> So that's well. That's, let me. That's how I feel that I, I we shouldn't even treat your opinion like, like I, it's worth. I was gonna say. I was gonna say something I don't think has ever been uttered in the history of the show, which is agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can somewhat split the difference here. For uh, for the record, I'm a mild appreciator of Babylon, not not a hater. I just don't think it was entirely successful, and I think actually that. This is an easy role for Pitt. I don't think he has to work too hard. And the reason I resist it is I think he's he's good in the majority of scenes, but there are a couple that ring incredibly false where I saw the Pitt that you saw years ago, Adam, that that bothered you for a long time. And it's the one that always comes to mind is one of um, an argument scene with one of his later wives. And I can just see the pressing there in in trying to get to the emotional intensity of that scene. So for me, I think this is a fine pit performance. Um, and, uh, I think Babylon is a, you know, interesting, not entirely successful film. So let me boringly place myself in the middle. Here. <laughs> I had no idea. I would be so provocative. I feel like I'm guesting on a podcast called pit apologists spotting or something. You know? Hey, you know what? Not a bad idea. <laughs> I could start. I could start that show. Let's move on to lead actor, where I have a feeling we might get some more venom from Michael Phillips here in a moment. Austin Butler, nominated for Elvis, Colin Farrell, The Banshees of Inna Sharon, Brendan Fraser, The Whale, Paul Meskel, Afterson, Bill Nye for Living. You have been pretty in favor of the Banshees of Inna Sharon performances so far, Michael. Will that continue as you tell us who will win and who should win? Best lead actor. I think this is probably the toughest. I mean, considering how many of them I'm destined to get wrong on March 12th, uh, uh, this, but from this point of view, on the other side, before we actually hear who won, this is the toughest category to dope out, I think. I, uh, suddenly, Brendan Fraser looks like the will win based on recent wins. And, hmm. just, you know, I think a lot of people. Like like you say, with the, the narrative of like um, real life quasi comebacks of some size, um, even though these actors like Brendan Fraser notably, uh, you know, have been working the whole time, but but this feels like a comeback, and he's and he's kind of a, a reliably affecting uh, awards recipient. You know, I mean, he's 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 wonderful, and and uh, you know, he's he's also <laughs> as much as I can carve away everything i don't like about the whale i think he's, he's very good in it if you can find him underneath all that um yeah so he will win uh should win hmm. paul miscall i think for um 
for After Sun, actually, even more than Colin Farrell. I would love it if either one of those guys won. Yeah. Um, and, and look, Bill Nye is wonderful in Living, where he plays the uh, post-World War II longtime civil servant who is, is um, almost too late discovering his value in life and his capacity to enjoy what time he has left. Um, uh, honestly, it'd be, it'd be tough. I, if Austin, if Austin Butler wins in Elvis, I, I, I won't ever come back on this show. <laughs> It'll be our fault. I mean, yeah, I what know. do we have to do with it? Even though I, it's I a great know. performance that I <laughs> well, think we just, both love. Just wait. <sighs> just wait, Josh. Okay. Oh, <laughs> Adam's going to go. No, you're not going over Colin I, Farrell. I might, I might put it out there and will it into being. Right, we'll let's hear we'll find out. Know. I want to hear what, what you guys have to say. I can't, I can't wait for this. I can't wait for Adam to abandon Colin Farrell. But first, let me predict <laughs> that Brendan Fraser. I will never uh-huh. abandon Colin Farrell. Okay, we'll see. Brendan Fraser is going to win. And I think, you know, as you said, Michael, I, I, you described it as, you know, he's he's been a amiable winner so far or a, a rewarding winner to watch. Something like that is exactly right. You know, he has the more emotional off-screen story. As you can tell, I give more credence to what's happening behind the scenes in these things <laughs> than what's on the screen. Um, and, you know, that's fine. I think he's he's incredible in the whale. To your point, Michael, sometimes working against the rest of the film and managing to find, um, you know, a, a lot of dignity there. I'll use that word again. Um, so I think the performance backs it up. I also think, I don't know how many voters, you know, play this, think about this. But if you look back at history, it does seem to factor in. Brendan Fraser possibly might not get another shot. Just look at the opportunities he's had in the past years. Yes, he's been working, Michael, but it hasn't been at um, high notoriety, high, you know, awareness. And so I wonder if that'll factor in is, is this might be this guy's shot to win an Oscar. Whereas someone like Colin Farrell, who I think is probably the second best option though we can talk about Austin, Austin Butler too. I just think he's too young. He's a case where, you know, I don't know if it's the kind of performance or performer that you see pulling a Tom Hanks and, you know, getting to the Oscars for multiple years, but still the guy's so young. I could see people saying, ah, he'll, he'll have another shot. Colin Farrell, I think, though an older actor is has been hitting his stride lately and voters could say we'll get to him down the road i'm sure we'll have an opportunity to do that let's reward brendan fraser now so that's why i'm going with fraser's hmm. my prediction i think it should be colin farrell though for banshees mm-hmm. um if he does just for the record though i think he's he's even better in banshees but I'm going to consider it partly for his lead performance in After Yang as well. Maybe like one one Oscar foot will be for After Yang on the statue, and 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 the rest will be for Banshees. But that's my hope. No, it's great at the yeah. National Society of Film Critics voting. That was absolutely you know there was no disagreement that we, that Farrell should win for both pictures for both After Yang and Banshees, and that was that was you know that it's a great instant proof of the kind of subtlety and range he's got. Yeah. Fun fact, this is the first time in some time that all five nominees for lead actor are first-time Oscar nominees. Josh, Michael, how long do you think it's been? Give me a year that you think it was the last time that we had five first-timers. First-timers in this, in this category. In this category. So it's got to be a long time, right? If If... Let's see. 70s, maybe? Back in the 70s. I'm just trying to think of it. I'm going to say 90s. I'm going to say 1996. Okay. Michael, going with the 70s? Uh, 
<laughs> I can't tell you. I love the whole decade, so I can't pick a year. Uh, uh, oh God! Uh, no, this will. What do you want? I think we should devote a certain amount of listening time in this program to me, just actually mentally going through every deliberating. Episode. Let's see, Cimarron, nineteen thirty-one. <laughs> no, that's Molly, also Molly a new podcast. Beria, we're going to start for the year. <laughs> okay, fine. Nineteen sixty-two. Holy cow! Was the last yeah, yeah, yeah. time. And in terms of who will win, I am taking a cue from friend of the show, really wonderful critic based now out of Chicago over this past year. He made the move. Isaac Feldberg, he tweeted just yesterday, my hot Oscars theory is that Austin Butler's winning best actor oh for my Elvis. God, I bet he and will, too. I, I bet that son I of a think gun. he's right. The real character aspect, the most larger-than-life mythic entertainer of the past century, mm -hmm. and it's been very well documented at this point, all of the capital W-O-R-K work Butler put in, the months and months and months of dedication, the dialect coaches, probably movement and dance coaches, who knows, inhabiting Elvis to the point where, as everyone is still talking about he hasn't totally been able to shake it. And if this is all just a long con by Butler to be this affable about it, he's always had this ambition for awards success. Well, then you know what? He deserves to win because he truly is the greatest actor of the year. I'm buying Butler. I'm buying his approach to the craft, to his craft as genuine. I'm buying his performance as genuine and appropriately gargantuan. He's so good, Michael, even though I know you hate this movie, mm. that I'm not even mad. I'm not too mad about the fact, let me say that. I'm not too mad about the fact that I think he's going to beat Colin Farrell. I think it's a good enough performance that I'm hoping for at least, let's say, I don't know, the next five years, the Academy doesn't give another win to a best actor or actress for a biopic performance. This should just kind of bury it. Yeah, the biopic bit. thing is definitely in his favor that I, I didn't factor in. Yeah, I think I think you don't even have to go back to '62 really to look at kind of the tea leaves in a in a funny way, just because of Rami Malek, who I think is a much more interesting actor than Austin Butler so far. Uh, but the fact that he won for Bohemian Rhapsody uh, would indicate that hmm. you have a popular movie uh, that purports to tell a version of of you know a musician's a singer's story. Uh, uh, in a totally fraudulent and mediocre way, uh, then uh, you know, bring bring in the Oscars. So there you uh, go. bring in the Oscars. Yeah. Well, if I was handing out the prize, I would give it to Colin Farrell. Even though I think I just talked myself into Austin Butler, I'm going to stick with my number one for the past several months. And yes, Josh, I'm going to stick with the actor who gave us two of the best lead performances Whew. of the year, and that's. That's really hard to do, especially because of your choice, Michael. Paul Meskel is in the mix. I was so sure he would be the egregious omission right. in this category that I had just given up hope completely. But he got the nom for a devastating performance in what I think, and I know you think, Josh, is the movie of the year. This is a category where it would be really hard for the Academy to misstep. So I'm going Farrell. Should win. Banshees of Sharon. Michael, who would you love to insert if you could? Austin Butler, Elvis, oot. I don't like it. Uh, shouldn't be on the list. 
offends me to even read the words. Actually, no, that that goes too far. I, I, it's too early. <laughs> Let's just say charitably, it might be a little early for Austin Butler to win Best Actor. Uh, mm-hmm. But I would I would pop in from the Park Chan Wook film Decision to Leave. Very good. Uh, Park Hail as uh, as this really a great, very still, uh, charismatic, uh, kind of cryptic, but uh, endlessly interesting center of a film noir, um, a, a really sharp film noir riff that um, also was just one of the most beautiful films I saw of all last year. But it's, it's a really good performance, and um, yeah, I, would, I would recognize that in Mr. Butler's place. Okay, Josh. Nice choice. So can I kick out Bill Nye, even though I haven't seen Livy no. yet? Because oh, I no, can't, you can't. What? How I dare can't you? imagine, you know, these other four are so good. As you said, Adam, Paul Meskel, right. you know, would be right up there for me with Brendan Fraser and Colin Farrell. And I think Austin Butler is amazing. You're a stronger man than me, Michael, if you can resist what he's doing in Elvis. So I'm just waiting, I'm waiting, okay, I'm waiting for Austin Butler to just say, oh, and also I had two hip replacements <laughs> after filming that thing. Okay. So you got to give it to me. Right. <laughs> so it sounds like the campaign is rubbing you <laughs> a little, <laughs> a little more wrongly than the performance perhaps. Well, yeah, anyways, maybe. I don't care what our rules are. Bill Nye is out for me and I'm substituting Sterling K. Brown, who was in a very small film, so good in it. The movie was Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, and he's this disgraced pastor. Anchored a movie that, you know, was a bit uneven overall, incredibly interesting with some um, very provocative moments. And at the center of it was this great performance from Sterling K. Brown. So I would slide him in. Okay. This wasn't a particularly deep category for me. And a lot of these categories, I can have 10, 15, 17, 18 contenders, performances that I really love. And this was more top-heavy. But here again, good job, Academy. They knew what they were doing. Four of these five were in my top five of the year. The only exception was Bill Nye, but that was because he wasn't an option for me. I hadn't seen Living at the time of our ballot submission. And maybe I'm going to break the rules here, Josh. This would be a first in the history of these Oscar previews. Can I just say I'm totally fine with the five we got? I mean, I'm I'm more mixed on living than you, Michael, but I'm not mixed on Nye's melancholy performance. And if if I was forced, I suppose I would dump Bill Nye just because I love the other four performances so much. And I'd swap in Ram Charan from RRR. <laughs> but I think Bill Nye is really good and obviously an incredibly talented actor. First Oscar nomination from Bill Nye. I don't want to replace anybody. These are the five. I did wonder when your present shift ended. Why would you mind about that? Why? Well, for one thing, because they're showing I was a male war bride at the pictures. I wondered if you'd care to come along. No, I shan't be encouraging this skiving any longer. You need to get back to the office, all right? What will they be thinking? Yes, but you see, today <clears throat> is my pictures day. Uh, I was merely wishing for a companion. Generosity just absolutely brings this show to a grinding halt. It'll probably be the last time (laughs) that ever happens on one of these Oscar previews as well. Okay, lead actress. Lead actress, Kate Blanchett for Tar, Ana de Armas for Blonde, Andrea Riseborough for Two Leslie, and then the two Michelles, Michelle Williams for The Fablemans and Michelle Yeoh. Everything, everywhere, all at once. How about this? In the interest of time. Who says it's going to be Michelle Yeoh? Who says it's going to be Kate Blanchett? Yo. 
I think Yo. Okay, I'm. I think it's Blanchett. I think she's going to win it. It's going to be between those two. One of us is wrong. One of us is wrong. <laughs> you yeah, are correct. I mean, it's it's really a tough call. I, I think I just look at the fact that Blanchett has won twice, and mm-hmm. that's you know the only thing that makes me think. Um, Michelle Yeoh might have a shot at knocking her off because it's a formidable performance. It's the kind of performance I think the Academy would normally like to reward. They love her. Maybe they've loved her enough if they're looking at their other option being Michelle Yeoh, who hasn't hasn't been nominated, I think. I could be wrong about that, but certainly hasn't won before. Michael, who should win then? Mm. Uh, I would probably give it to... Uh... To to Kate Blanchett, I think it's her best performance ever. Actually, on on film, I, she's often a you little, said that Josh often a little too much for me. Yeah, uh, even in the stuff she's won. I mean, like the fact that she was awarded for uh, Blue Jasmine, the Woody Allen film, is just mm. ridiculous. And and uh, not just because it's bad material, but I, I think it's just performance is just like flailing in a really high, highly skilled way. But I think there's not a moment I, I didn't find telling in some way or really 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 scary or or just fully inhabited I, wonderful work so yeah no I mm-hmm. think she should yeah blanchett adam we we talked about it we talked about tyra in the context of her performance and you know that that it very well might be her career defining one mm-hmm. um, this is maybe a matter of just i don't know if personal taste is even the right phrase to use because i as good as i think she is my should win would be michelle yo the stunning precision blanchett brought is awe-inspiring but it's maybe and i'm gonna say it's a performance in a narrower range than what's going on in everything everywhere which does not mean that it's a one note or just doing one thing performance obviously kate blanchett is juggling a myriad of things the technical precision of playing Mm -hmm. this sort of character alone but i mean is we get more comedy in what michelle yo is doing along with that drama um, which is as gripping to me as what we get from Blanchett and we get the action. I mean, maybe that's the decisive factor is that Michelle Yeoh is also doing martial arts <laughs> and, and <laughs> you could do a one-to-one, you know, yes, what Blanchett is doing with the baton is maybe close in some of those scenes to martial arts. She and gets she that does aggressive. attack somebody, she, Josh. She does. Uh, she gets that aggressive, but yeah, considering what Yo is doing and in the context of her career, you know, I love how this role allows her to do everything she's done in all her other movies in one fully formed performance. So I think that's why I'd go with Michelle Yeoh. I don't want to say anything to take away from Michelle Yeoh's performance. It's my number two. And if she does win, I will be extremely happy. Same. I just love Tar. I love Tar and I love that Blanchett performance. And I'm overlooking the fact that she's won a couple times before. I want to exclude that and just give it to her based on the performance I did find the most profound. Yeah, that's what I took away from Tar and Blanchett's performance. Now, if we have to take somebody out, I feel like with you guys, there might be a couple contenders here. I could be wrong, but who would you like to have seen in here instead? And who would you kick out? I would, I would, I really love Danielle Deadweiler's work as Mamie Till in Till. That's a film like many films every year that, that A, didn't get the audience it deserved and B, didn't really even get the critical reception it I think I think the performance warranted wonderful work, uh, really good film. So I hope we see a hell of a lot more from both, you know, her and the director. Um, Anna de Armas probably from Blonde. It would be the one I would pitch. Not necessarily because it's 
it's not it's not sloppy or ill-considered work it's just it's a it's a it's a cynical and ill-considered film though and it doesn't give the actors any of the actors any room i think to figure out something truly uh, worth exploring with uh, with this treatment of Joyce Carol Oates's idea of Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, I'll go a little bit further, Michael. That's who I would take out too. And I'm not just holding Blonde against Anna de Armas, who I think is incredibly talented. I think her performance is part of the movie's focus on misery. I really do. I think it's lacking any of the vivacity or wit that Monroe had um, on the screen. And I thought if we had seen just a little bit of that, even of course in the film, it would have been a much better film. But if I'd seen a little more of that in the performance, I would have appreciated that more. So that was an easy removal for me. And I'm going to bang the drum once more for a vocal performance here to be nominated. Jenny Slate for Marcel Deschel with shoes on. I mean, Until the Academy establishes a vocal performance category, I'm going to keep pushing for recognition for that work here. So that would be my should have been nominated. I don't have any issues with Andrea Riseborough getting nominated, and I certainly am not referencing there the the process of her promoting herself. Don't care. But I like the performance enough, and obviously she's a very talented actress, but I would replace her with a performance I like more in a woman reluctantly coming home to face her demons movie I like significantly more, and it's the aforementioned Jennifer Lawrence in hmm. Causeway. Mm-hmm. Nice. That would be mm-hmm. my pick. Later in the show, we will have our choices for best director and best picture. Michael, can we entreat you to stick around for that? Yes, briefly. Yes, if we can do okay. it in like in two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you would like to see all of our choices for the Oscars, you can do that. Filmspotting.net slash lists. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. I spent the last seven years of my life living out my wildest dreams. Bianca. Rocky. My dad. This is built on their shoulders. That's from the trailer for Creed 3, directed by Adonis Creed himself, Michael B. Jordan. Jonathan Majors, the nemesis in this one. Tessa Thompson returns to the cast. You have some homework to do for this one, Josh. You need to see Creed 2. Do you plan to do that before seeing Creed 3? Yeah, I mean, unless you want to just fill me in narratively on what I missed, I but could, I, I really liked the original Creed, so I do want to see yeah. Creed 2. I don't remember why I missed it when it came out, but I'll be watching that, and then as you will be catching Creed 3 over the weekend. That's right. And we'll talk about it on our next show. It does open in wide release this weekend. Early reviews seem to be positive. 72 on Metacritic, 90% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Our friend Matt Singer, formerly of film spotting SVU, liked it. He said for Screen Crush, Creed 3 returns the franchise to its roots in macho melodrama. We will see for ourselves next week. Quick note about what's happening over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. 
It's part two of their Dance with the One Who Bought You pairing. They are discussing Magic Mike's Last Dance. This follows their earlier discussion of Vincent Minnelli's Best Picture Winning and American in Paris. I did enjoy that discussion. Your next picture show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. It's time now for some Massacre Theater, though not new Massacre Theater. We're going to be putting it on hiatus. We burned it to the ground for just last week <laughs> or a couple weeks ago. Yes, apparently. It'll be on a little break here, but it is the part of the show where we normally perform a scene. You get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. We'll be giving a t-shirt away here a couple of weeks ago. We did Massacre this scene. Just listen, will ya? It's not to do with any women, all right? Um... I were a stripper, right? Me and Gaz and some fellas thought we could make a bob or two out of taking us clothes off. Strippers? All right, all right, I know. You and Gaz, strippers? We weren't that bad. That was Leslie Sharp and Mark Addy in 1997's The Full Monty. Written by Simon Buffoy, directed by Peter Cataneo. A couple of weeks ago, along with that massacre, we shared our top five Magicist Mike moments, along with a review of Magic Mike's Last Dance. And yes, I did share a few thoughts on Ant-Man and Quantum something I've forgotten already. So why did we choose that scene from the full Monty? Here's Beth Ann from Oshkosh, Wisconsin, with great excitement. I can identify this scene as being from The Full Monty. The connection to this episode being pretty simple, since there are not too many films featuring male strippers, but both this and Magic Mike feature blue-collar workers suffering from an economic downturn and feeling their masculinity threatened by not being able to pay the bills. As a last resort, our heroes decide to perform for women to supplement their income. Somewhere along the way, they are empowered by this silly industry and learn to love themselves and appreciate the ones they love. The Full Monty is still one of my heartwarming favorites. Thanks for bringing a smile to my face. And you know what's going to bring a smile to my face, Josh? That this worked out, that we're alternating, and you have to read this one from Chris Moody in Tetbury, UK. And you haven't even looked at this before, so this should be fun. Can't wait. I've enjoyed more than 15 years of Massacre Theater, but barely seconds after Josh gets a dig in about Adam's repertoire of accents, my jaw dropped as he then launched confidently into the scene with WTAF was that anyway. And then Adam doubled down with, no, I'm not sure I know what it was either. Listen, will ya? It's not to do with any of the women, all right? I'm, I'm well, a stripper, right? You do know the full Monty is set in Yorkshire, not Kerbloomed likely Mary Poppins have a banana cocker Nidlandenton. Did I do that justice, Chris? Probably not. I mean, that's amazing, actually. I practiced that like five times and didn't do it that way. Yeah, first read there, you know, it's it's a gift you have or you don't. Chris continues, can't think of any connections beyond the thematic match of male strippers set against economic hardship. The Full Monty does feature the best dance sequence in a job center from any film I can remember and was surely the inspiration for Hugh Grant's prime ministerial shuffle in Love Actually. You made my wife and I laugh, so thank you. And never stop, never stopping film spotting forever. Thank you, Chris. Brett Fisher in Portland, Oregon, wrote in, Lots of stripper and dance references in this episode, so that was my big clue. But take that, Chris and wife in Tetbury. Adam's marvelous vocal work. Marvelous. I mean, said, seal there for me. I think a video of Josh dancing 
should probably be the next incentive to increase the film spotting family membership total to 2000. Josh, how much is it worth to you? Oh, well, there is some real world application to this challenge. We're going to a fundraiser for our daughter's high school this weekend, and it's a dancing lessons gala. I think the parents who go, I believe we're going to get salsa and ballroom dancing lessons there. So I might try to get a little video of that and yeah, maybe we'll release it to the highest bidder, the highest film spot bonus family member bidder. I think it's bonus content. <laughs> I think it's our next step. Oh, no, bonus no I want cash. I'm not giving this course away you do. for even film spotting family fees. I mean, this okay. is going to be big money. Let's go ahead and have you reach into the kind of brimming film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. Our winner is Chris Myers from Cheska, Minnesota. Congratulations, Chris. Email feedback at filmspotting.net. It will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt or film spotting tote bag. As Josh said, Massacre Theater going on a little hiatus as we embark on film spotting madness. It will return in April, whether you want it to or not. Psycho or the graduate, which will it be? In the heat of the night, Bonnie and Clyde for me. These choices haunt me day and night. The pressure's on, I must get it right. Film spotting madness is the game that we play. How about that? The comedic, cinematic stylings of Chicago's own Taylor Cole. Film spotting family member Taylor Cole, everyone. Incredible. I mean... I think comedic is selling it short. That that could have held its own in a, you know, classic Hollywood musical voice, I feel like Taylor has. Or maybe, maybe it's more fitting for Madness, a 1960s, one of the last big epic Hollywood musicals mm-hmm. they put out in the 60s. I could see him appearing in one of those and holding his own. How about the Oscars? He should be writing songs for Billy Crystal. Let's there bring you him go. back. There Open you go. the Oscars with Taylor Cole and Billy Crystal. I think Taylor might say yes to that. It is March, which means nothing else than Film Spotting Madness, our annual bracket-style elimination tournament. This year, it is the best of the 1960s. Taylor, responsible for the music and the performance for the lyrics. How about this? Another family member, another trivia spotter, Devin Wombold, or rather the AI bot that Devin prompted to craft. Let me get this right. This is Devin's words. This is what he put into the AI. A Broadway-style 11 o'clock number about a film lover's difficult decisions in choosing the best film of the 1960s on a March Madness-style bracket called Film Spotting Madness. The robots are indeed coming for all of us. See, I knew it was only going to be a matter of time before we could just prompt in to one of these things Adam's opinion Mm -hmm. on (laughs) fill it in, and it'll spit it back, and you 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 can just sit back with your Moscow mule. You don't have to do a thing. I don't know why I hadn't thought of that. Uh huh. <laughs> How many more episodes of Film Spotting can we crank out? I'm all in. We'll never tell. <laughs> if you want to hear the entire song, watch Taylor perform. We will provide a link in our show notes, filmspotting.net. Thank you so much for that, Taylor, and to Devin. Madness. It is the best of the 60s. We've been counting down the decades to get to this point. It's our ninth annual tournament. Josh, we talked about. The play-in matchups last week, there were 16 of them. We highlighted some of the easy ones, some of the ones we thought were more difficult. And earlier this week, we published the official bracket and our round one polls. You can vote now in those round one polls at filmspotting.net or filmspottingmadness.com. Those polls close Monday the 6th at 11 a.m. Central Time. There were 
a lot of tough matchups in round one, as we'll get to in a moment. First, though, we want to give you a quick explanation of the Madness calendar. And trust me, this is as much for my benefit as anyone else's. We're going to go one round a week until we name a champion. So 64 titles this week, then we'll whittle that down to 32 the next, 16, 8, 4, and 2. As Adam said, polls are open now for round one, voting on those initial 64. Those polls will close on March 6 at 11 a.m. Then round two voting goes live that same afternoon or, you know, whatever time it is where you are when it's Monday afternoon in Chicago. Use that as sort of your guide. Also, this one is time sensitive, very time sensitive. This I also need to be reminded of. Although I have my prediction in already, so maybe I'm good here. We do have a bracket prediction contest going on, as we always do. In fact, we have two bracket prediction contests this year. To play along, you need to submit a bracket by Monday, March 6th. So depending on when you're listening to this, it could be coming up pretty quickly here. 11 a.m. Monday, March 6th is when you need to submit that prediction bracket. It's pretty easy to do. Here's what I did. Just go to the main page of filmspotting.net or the Madness homepage at filmspottingmadness.com. You will see there a link for the prediction contest. That's all you got to do. That's where you can put in your picks. That's right. It will take you to the bracket itself, and you'll be able to drag and drop your picks into the tournament and submit your bracket. The first prediction contest is open to everyone. You, your mom, your friends, anybody. The winner gets a film spotting prize pack and the opportunity to join us you and me, Josh, along with producer Sam in our own internal prediction contest, the 2024 contest. And Mike Merrigan, the godfather of film spotting madness, is also included in that. Last year's winner, Brett Fisher, who we just heard from in Massacre Theater, is competing against us this year. He had 63 possible correct choices to make. That's how many you can get right in our bracket. Do you remember, Josh, how many... Of those 63, Brett accurately called. This is coming back to me. I think he almost nailed it, right? Was it like 60? 62. Yeah, yeah. He missed one matchup. That's incredible. In the entire tournament. Now, I'm going to throw down the gauntlet. I think the 60s is way tougher to predict than any other decade, maybe any other bracket we've had in Film Spotting Madness. So, Brett, I'm going to say you're not going to do as well this time but watch now he'll crush us both josh brett just beware adam's probably going to like last minute throw a snake bracket at us or something uh-huh. like that that somehow <laughs> it up. to his advantage so just so you know that brett going in yeah he he's ready prediction contest number two is for our film spotting family members exclusively that bracket also needs to be submitted by march 6th at 11 a.m central time if you get the film spotting newsletter as family members do You'll find the instructions there. And if for some reason you didn't get it, you want it, you need a link, send us a note, feedback at filmspotting.net. The winner of that contest will not only get their own film spotting prize pack, Josh, but they'll get to choose the subject of a future bonus episode and they'll have the option. I love our producer, Sam. I think he's worried that people are going to be way too shy or introverted or something to join us on one of these episodes. But I'm guessing almost anybody who wins this contest, will have a movie or some topic in mind that they have always wanted to hear us discuss, and they can't wait to join us for it. They want to be part of it. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it depends who wins, right? We just want to make room see. for all. If you're yes. eager to join the conversation, you're welcome. If you just want to make the pick and sit back and hear what we have to say as the winner, you get that right, too. Film Spotting Family, all the membership benefits are available at filmspottingfamily.com. The play-ins, they have played their way in. We have the tournament set, 64 films enter, only one film from the 1960s survives. Josh, we have both voted. We have both also submitted our prediction brackets. And as we like to do, we're going to highlight a top five or so toughest matchups and easiest matchups. And I'm sure we'll overlap on one or two, but what's always fun about this is we always have some real discrepancies. Ones that I thought were incredibly tough were no-brainers for you and vice versa. Do you want me to start or do you want to get going? Um, I don't have a full top five for both because I honestly haven't voted yet. I have submitted my prediction oh. bracket. So I wrestled with that, which was quite difficult, to your point, to try to predict exactly where voters will go with this. But I'm scanning quickly here. I'll give you a couple right off the top and then I can riff mm -hmm. on yours. But easiest for me is something that I posted on Twitter as I was looking at the bracket today. Uh, the umbrellas of Cherbour over Charade. And I say that as a Charade fan, as an Audrey Hepburn fan, Cary Grant fan. I mean, that's a very fun movie. But when you're pitting that up against one of the best, maybe, my, yeah, it is my favorite movie musical of all time because it was recently on my sight and sound top 10 list until I think I bumped it when we revised things this past year, um, bumped it down to what, 11 through 20. So yeah, you've got an 11 through 20 film of all time going up against a, you know, a fun sixties picture. Right. Right. Umbrellas is going to win out. So no brainer for me there. One that I have not yet decided on, and maybe you can help me. Maybe you can speak to where you're on with this one, Adam. But looking at these is going to be very difficult is La Dolce Vita, mm -hmm. the Fellini film, one of the first non-English language films I probably saw as either sure. a precocious high schooler or certainly by college mm -hmm. that just opened my mind to what movies could be. And, you know, yes. also made me think I was really like, I was really getting into it now, mm -hmm. you know, um, I was no longer just a fan of Star Wars and Indiana Jones. I was a serious cinephile and I've watched it over the years since, and it's incredible. You know what else has happened over the years since? Yeah. I've come to know the work of Agnes Varda and right. it started a movie of hers. I probably know best because I saw it, you know, well before we did our Varda marathon, Cleo from five to seven loved it immediately. And right. with repeats have only appreciated it more, have come to appreciate Varda's contribution to world cinema more and seen her on par, I would say, with Fellini. So in some ways, incredibly different films. I don't know how I'm going to choose between those two. <laughs> I, I have to do that within the next couple of days. Can you give me, can you push me, can you nudge me one way or the other? I don't know if I can, because when I look at my list of the top five toughest first round matchups, this is for me to vote in. I've got that one at number two, and it really easily could be number one. The only one I actually paused over a little longer was Kurosawa's High and Low up against Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. I love both of these films, and I think both of them are important films 
similarly acclaimed, similarly influential, even I'd say. I just feel about the same about both of them. And I love both of them. And I can't even do the trick you do sometimes, Josh. And I do it as well, which is you consider, well, does that filmmaker have another movie in the tournament you really love? Right. And maybe maybe one of the films, that's the only one they've got. Kurosawa's got Yojimbo. Leone's got The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Mm-hmm. I, I did eventually, just earlier today actually, finally click the button for Kurosawa. And I really can't articulate why. I just, I had to make a choice. It was a toss-up, love both films, but fell on the side of Kurosawa and a Kurosawa film that I think maybe even gets overlooked sometimes in terms of its greatness. You know, you think about Ron, you think about Seven Samurai, even Ikaru, Yojimbo, the other film from him that's in this tournament. And for me, High and Low is in that top three conversation when it comes to Kurosawa. Yeah, and in a perfect world doing this, right, we we have so much time that we see this bracket and we not only catch up with blind spots and those sorts of things, but we revisit these movies. I mean, in a way, maybe it's a warped exercise, but we do a double feature, right? In one day, it'd be fantastic to watch those two mm-hmm. movies. You're really holding them side by side then. Recency bias is set aside, all that other stuff, and forcing yourself to choose after two recent viewings. If I did that, yeah, I mean, going back to La Dolce Vita and Cleo from five to seven, I don't, as I've seen both of those repeated times, I don't know Mm -hmm. if if that actually would help me. Hopefully there would be an instinctual response that would nudge me. So where did you go in that matchup? I I went with Cleo. And it's partly, I'm sure, because of my appreciation that I have established even further for Agnes Varda because of our Agnes Varda marathon. But like you, I had seen Cleo from five to seven first. I might've even seen Cleo from five to seven before I saw La Dolce Vita, because I remember it being a movie we watched in a directing class in film school. And I know La Dolce Vita is more sweeping and has all of that Fellini grandeur and there's an audacity to it. But you know what? There's an audacity to Cleo from five to seven oh, as yeah. well. And it's just as important. I'll say it. It's just as important a film as La Dolce Vita. Really high on the sight and sound list this past go round, the critics poll. And for good reason, maybe I was swayed a little bit. Maybe I was swayed just a bit, Josh, by the fact that eight and a half is still in the tournament. And this is all we have from Varda. But for me, I did eventually vote for Cleo. Yeah, and I think I'm going that way if I do, and probably will, there will be some fear in the back of my mind that I'm underestimating La Dolce Vita because it's been a while since I've seen it. But that's that's the yeah. game you got to play. That is the game. My number three toughest matchup, Midnight Cowboy, which I did eventually vote for over Belle du Jour. And this was a nice one that Sam and I got in terms of themes in the opening round, a prostitutes matchup, Belle de Jour versus Midnight Cowboy. How about this one? Speaking of marathons, one of our most revelatory, not just the Apu trilogy, but other films from Satyajit Ray, The Big City, my favorite film from that marathon. And I actually put one of those films in my top 10 sight and sound list, greatest of all time. But The Big City is so good, and it's up against Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde is, for me, hands down, one of the top 10 best films of the 60s. But you know what? So is The Big City. Yeah. So this is a question to me where you have to factor in 
influence and impact. And of course, we're talking about American influence and impact. Mm -hmm. So we're looking through a specific lens and there are probably experts in India, Indian cinema who could point to the big city and say, hey, if you're looking at things from our standpoint, the big city is as monumental in the history of movies as Bonnie and Clyde is. Um, but from where I'm standing, I think of Bonnie and Clyde as one of those transition pictures between of eras in Hollywood. Mm hmm. Yeah, now, for sure. Which movie do I like better after seeing The Big City? The Big City. It's, you know, I think it's, for whatever, whatever this is worth, it's the better film. But when we're talking about madness, are we voting for our personal favorites? Are we voting for those that represent the 60s the best? In, if you're doing the latter, well, both. if you're doing the latter, you know, you probably would have to go with Bonnie and Clyde with the caveat of I'm saying that from a Western perspective. Sure. My number five toughest, the last one here I'll mention, Planet of the Apes going up against In Cold Blood. And this is one where there may be some recency bias. I'll admit it. I just rewatched Planet of the Apes. Logged it on Letterboxd. It wasn't planned. It was during my trip abroad over New Year's with my son Holden and my wife Sarah. And we had a little downtime. We'd had a long day. Come back to the hotel. You kind of crash. You turn on the TV, see what's on. Planet of the Apes is just beginning. Holden's never seen it. And I'm like, Holden, I actually think you'll really dig this movie. Next thing you know, we've watched the entire thing. He loved it. I loved it. I think it's something more than just a really good sci-fi film. It really is one of the best films of the 60s. And yeah, I'm even putting it higher than In Cold Blood. And this may be the matchup that's representative of the insanity of film spotting madness, right? How do you think about... In Cold Blood and The Planet of the Apes at the same time and have to pit those two. They're such entirely different projects. Yeah. So in terms of the easiest, I'll give you five real quick here that I didn't pause at all. No hesitation. Click the button. Move on to tougher choices. Here's Fellini. Eight and a half over The Great Escape. And I like The Great Escape, but that one is simple. Yojimbo over Goldfinger. I like Bond but I don't like Bond as much as I like that Kurosawa. Thing. I'll be really curious to see how that one turns out because there was some discussion, right? About does Bond sure. need to be... We almost took Goldfinger. Right. Like, is it a serious... This goes back to the era thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, is it a serious enough film to be included? Yes, if you want to represent the 60s. Now, this will be the proof of if it gets shellacked. <laughs> it was like, maybe he didn't belong. Well, and what if it wins? In which case, I think both myself and Sam putting this bracket together, we would be closing out film spotting madness with the ninth edition. <laughs> there wouldn't be a 10th edition. We'd just be like, okay, it's run its course because Goldfinger beat you, Jimbo. Sorry for those of you who voted for Bond. But it might be an indicator of how people are approaching it, right? If they're trying sure. to be representative of this decade, you know, we'll, mm -hmm. we'll see. I think, I mean, my guess would be, and I think that's was my prediction that Yojimbo would take it. Yeah. My number three easiest, you already mentioned it, and it's ironic a little bit in that I like Charade less than you, and I also like Umbrellas of Sherbor less than you, but only because well, you absolutely yeah, adore and revere do. this film. <laughs> yeah, it's in your top 10 of all time. Very easy, very easy for me to click the button for Sherbor over Charade. 
The Graduate. This is where Bailey, I know you're out there, Bailey, and you're going to be so mad at me. You're already so mad that Mary Poppins had to be part of a play-in. And look, I loved Mary Poppins when I was a kid, and I'm sure if I watched it now, I would also really enjoy it. But I just can't pick it over Mike Nichols, The Graduate. I can't. Understandable. Totally get it. I'm with you. And finally, speaking of Bonnie and Clyde and films that influence that tremendously, the French New Wave, Jules and Jim, really easy for me to go with Truffaut there over Richard Lester and the Beatles, A Hard Day's Night. Yeah, that one I'm not so sure about. That could fall into a hardest for me. I think A Hard Day's Night is slept on as, you know, not just a rock musical. It There is so much creativity and artistry and self-awareness at play there. Um, I think it's overlooked. That said, I also do have Jules and Jim as like, you know, sometimes this is where star ratings, which I scoff at a lot, are helpful. If I look at my website, four out of four for both of these films. So as I revere them both, my instinct says I would go with Jules and Jim. But then again, my you know, if I think about it in terms of era, best of the 60s, to have the Beatles knocked out this mm-hmm. early, I know music and film, but when they're on film and it's a great yeah. film, you might have to give that some serious consideration. Well, I definitely need to revisit A Hard Day's Night, having only seen it once. I think maybe it was an anniversary and it got re-released in theaters for a bit, and I enjoyed it, but I also might still be a little bitter that it took down D.A. Pennebaker's Don't Look Back in the play. Oh, there it is. Still, I love Jules and Jim. At one point in film spotting's history, I had it among my top 10 favorite films of all time, so not a surprise. That one is pretty easy for me. Many people have noted this in email and on social media, and I'll say it here. Sam and I had the same comment the other day about the 60s madness bracket yes it's hard to make some of these choices but predicting not that we've ever come close to winning the tournament and having an impeccable perfect bracket but i've never struggled so much josh trying to predict how film spotting madness would go yes later rounds that's one thing but in the first round you are used to having the seeding affect things meaning if you've got a number 10 seed going against the number 55 seed, then just like in sports, the 10 seed should win. It shouldn't be too tough. Now, everyone's tastes are going to be different. This is film and not sports. We get it. But there's a reason why that movie is number 10 and not 55. And as I looked at it, Josh, so many of them, I thought I could go either way on this. I know people who adore both of these films or there's a certain affection for this filmmaker or for this genre. I think about half of them I had to stop and go back to because I just wasn't sure how they'd come out. Did you have a similar experience or not? Yeah, well, using my complicated formula that I've devised over the past nine years for predicting Go with your gut. (laughs) Uh, no, no, I, I sat down and spent an afternoon with this and, and it wasn't easy. I will say, and I may be proven wrong as things broke down on the bracket, I felt I had a very, a fairly clear winner of the overall tournament. Me too. Um, that seemed fairly obvious, but we might have two different obvious picks. Um, I wonder if, you know, the difficult ones as I'm looking at it, what was hard to get a feel for even doing, you know, a vague amount of research 
we're further away. We're getting further and further I think that's part of it. away, right? From mm-hmm. from movies we experienced in real time. And so we weren't part, and our voters, most of our voters, I would say, not all, but the majority of our voters yeah. were not part of these films as part of their initial release. So now what we're also taking into account is reappreciation, longevity, um, the canon, and the canon, yeah. another factor, which is a good factor, in the last five years, the reevaluation of the canon. Mm-hmm. So... I think maybe that's why it's more difficult. There are a lot more factors at play now that we've made it back to the 1960s. Yeah, I think you're dead on. You can vote in all 32 round one matchups now. Filmspotting.net slash madness. Next week, we'll give you the round one results and we will share those round two matchups. And now, back to Taylor. Film spotting madness, it's a crazy ride. But in the end, I'll have... Sammy, we're going to use Daddy's camera to film it. Only crash the train once, okay? Then after we get the film developed, you can watch it crash over and over till it's not so scary anymore. And your real train won't ever get broken. One more thing, Dolly. Let's not tell your father. It'll be our secret movie, just yours and mine. I really don't want to offend any of the other Best Director nominees, but it has to be something to win a Best Director Oscar when you're going up against Steven Spielberg. He's been nominated eight times, only won twice. Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, he could win a third time for the movie you just heard a clip from, The Fablemans. But before we get back to the Oscars and our picks with Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune, we did want to spend a few minutes highlighting our first film spotting marathon of 2023. We usually do a couple of these per year. And going back to the very first year of the show, 2005, these marathons have been about filling in our cinematic blind spots with BFI announcing their top 100, the results of that critics poll and their director's poll in the past few months. I think it was November, end of November, 2022, we got that list. We thought we would cross off the movies that I suppose we're most embarrassed to admit we've never seen from that top 100. That marathon is going to start in two weeks. So we wanted to make sure, Josh, that people knew what titles were coming and they could get ready to participate. Michael, we have you here as well. So you can chime in on our picks and maybe even share a blind spot or two of yours. But I think we've got a good lineup, Josh. Six films, six countries, four decades. And I do believe all of them are blind spots for the both of us. Possibly you've seen one of them. We'll find out here in a moment. But all six of these films made the critics list, the top 100 greatest films of all time, as put out by Sight and Sound and the BFI. That lineup is. Yeah, I'm looking at this and I have not seen any of these embarrassingly. So at the end of this marathon, I'll be able to check them off my list. We're going to start with Sancho. The Bailiff, 1954, coming in at number 75 on that Sight & Sound Top 100 list. 
tie here, though. 75 also went to Imitation of Life, the Douglas Sirk film from 1959. Then we have Fear Eats the Soul, looking at 1974 here. That one ranked at number 52. We're going to look at Mirror, one of my Andrei Tarkovsky blind spots. I hope by the end of my life, because it might take that long to have seen every Andrei Tarkovsky film, this is going to help me knock one of those off my list. Mirror is number 31 on the Sight and Sound Top 100 list. The Chris Marker film, Sans Soleil, from 1983, is also going to be a part of this marathon. Comes in at number 59. And then the Edward Yang-directed film, A Brighter Summer Day, our most recent title, it looks like, in this marathon, came out in 1991, ranked at number 78 in the Sight and Sound list. That's going to close out our marathon. I thought it was possible that you had seen Mirror, the Tarkovsky. I know you've seen a couple other Tarkovsky films that I haven't, most notably Stalker, which also made the top 100. We're only going to fit in one Tarkovsky in this marathon, but six films I can't wait to finally catch up with. And we will list all of these titles and the various platforms where you can see them over at filmspotting.net. Just click on marathons at the top of the page or go to filmspotting.net slash marathons. I'm pretty sure all of these films have gotten Criterion Collection DVD or Blu-ray releases, and all of them except for Imitation of Life are available on the Criterion channel, but they are also on various VOD platforms. The only one, I will mention this, Josh, Sans Soleil, the Chris Marker film, really, really want it to be part of this marathon. And I think we'll probably keep it, but it's the only one that you can only see in one place. And that's at thecriterionchannel.com, at least what I've seen currently. So I am calling that one out, but we've got some time before we get to Sans Soleil. At least if we go in chronological order, we will start with Sancho the Bailiff. Michael, what do you think of our marathon lineup? I think it's great. And actually, I think this BFI 100 list is is one of the most useful lists of, of recent memory, uh, just in terms of, you know, every, I'm not saying everybody's got blind spots on it, but I certainly do. And it's more than I like to admit, you know, and so I won't admit mm-hmm. it. But, um, but <laughs> yeah, I see you dancing around which one of these you haven't seen, or do you want to brag and you have seen them all? Oh no no no! I'm I'm seriously at least at least eight or ten down. I mean I haven't I haven't seen uh, Wanda the Barbara Loden film, which is ridiculous. You know it's overdue. I, I haven't seen uh, this is one of the Kirstami's I haven't seen. I haven't seen Where's Where's the Friend's House. Um, How about know. from our marathon though? Are there any we should most be looking forward to that you have seen, or any of those six you haven't? I mean, I love Sancho the Bailiff. I've only seen it one time way back in my 30s, way back. Not the 30s, my 30s. And uh, <laughs> uh, But, I, I mean, that that film had a big, big impact on me every which way. Story, just the, just the film, all of it. It's just, it's just a beautiful piece of work. So, I mean, I mean, I'd love to hear what you guys have to say about that. So, you know what? I'll listen to it. I'll listen to it. All right. You outed yourself as not participating in our overlooked auteurs marathon from a couple of years ago because we talked about Barbara Loden's Wanda. So you missed that, Michael. All right. I'm calling you out for it. I missed that. I was working up my my wrath on actors who hadn't yet worked, like Austin (laughs) Butler. Uh-huh. Yeah. Again, for our complete marathon lineup, the Sight and Sound Top 100 Blind Spots, filmspotting.net, and click on Marathons. Let's wrap up our Oscar choices. Two categories left. Best Director could go to Martin McDonough for The Banshees of Inna Sharon or 
Daniels, Daniel Kwan, and Daniel Scheinert, everything, everywhere, all at once. The Fablemans, Steven Spielberg, of course, at the helm. Todd Field, the director of Tar, or Ruben Oslin for Triangle of Sadness. Michael, who will win? Who should win? I think the the Daniels, Kwan, and Scheinert will win for everything, everywhere, all at once. Should win, for, and for me, would be Todd Field, uh, who, who doesn't work often enough for my taste anyway, but she, I think, I think his winning hmm. tar is great. I think, you know, there's a, there's a slight conservatism in a few ways that seems to have cropped up in some of the nominations this year compared to previous years. And for that reason, the will win, I know the odds probably say the Daniels, but I wonder if Academy voters are going to find them and possibly even the movie a little annoying. And I say that as someone who had it on their top 10 list. And I thought, I wonder if push comes to shove, they're going to revert to something, someone more comfortable and familiar. And in this case, I actually think that someone might be Martin McDonough. Hmm. The Academy loves him. Nominations for three billboards and in Bruges. He also won a short film Oscar back in 2006. So this is... You know, someone with a track record of having appreciation from voters. I also think there's been no blowback on Banshees as there was in some quarters with three billboards. We won't say who on this panel had some blowback with three billboards, but, you know, there was there was some pushback on that one back when the Oscars otherwise fell in love with that. So this might be the time for Martin McDonough to get that win. Should win, I would say it should be the Daniels. And it's something of a miracle that they managed all the moving parts in that movie, let alone in a way that is smart, that is funny, that is emotional all at once. I know what you're saying, Michael, about you know wanting to see how it settles a year or two from now, that the tone is so aggressive of that film. And I normally put a little bit of a wall up against that. But when I did revisit it a second time, I found that I enjoyed it really even more because I was less worried about the logistics at play and those sorts mm-hmm, of things mm-hmm. and kind of just yeah. let it wash over me. So I don't, however, know that that's going to be the experience for the average Academy of voter. I'd love to see it. The Daniels is my should win pick, but the will win, I'm going to say Martin McDonough. I'm in agreement with Michael here on both counts. And I would maybe be more inclined to agree with you, Josh, about the Academy possibly overlooking Daniels because of that manicness, the insanity of that film. But I think that would apply to a possible best picture. I think it will only help them with best director. And I don't think Inna Sharon is near ostentatious enough for the Academy to give Martin McDonough a best director prize. It's the I think the most directed logic you're saying, like the most acted. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That is what I'm saying. And I think that unfortunately, I don't think this is accurate, but I think a lot of people will see the Banshees of Inna Sharon as a play on screen. They'll talk about the screenplay and they'll talk about the acting and not think about cinematography or editing or some of those other elements. And I think McDonough probably will get overlooked in favor of, Everything, everywhere, all at once, just because of the imagination, the inventiveness, the sheer absurd ingenuity of it will be too hard to overlook, I think, for best director. But who should win? Yeah, it's my favorite film of the bunch, Tar, directed by Todd Field. Three of these movies were in my top 10 of the year, but Tar was my number two. And it's just such an expansive but controlled and precise 
a vision and so precise a vision that its meaning and its implications, I think, will continue to be discussed and debated for decades. And that for me is a sign of a really good film and a really smartly written and smartly directed film. He's my clear winner, Todd Field. Spielberg would probably be my runner up. Who would you take out, Michael, and who would you insert instead? I like some of his work an awful lot, a lot a lot of it actually, but Ruben Ostland I would take out for Triangle of Sadness, a mysteriously overnominated title this year. Um mm-hmm. although I like I like a lot of it actually more than I would have guessed. But uh so he's out and I would uh, nominate in his place certainly Gina Prince Bythewood for The Woman King. Um I mean many others right behind her. Uh, including Steven Soderbergh for Kimmy, one of my favorite films last year, and just a director I just got so much satisfaction from almost every time. But uh, I thought The Woman King was really had an interesting personality for a big uh, narrative action picture and uh, and a moderately historically accurate, <laughs> you know, uh, piece of history that uh, that that was worth revisiting and just full of juicy performances and just really good camera sense. So yeah, that's. I think she's the one who got overlooked for me. Mysteriously overnominated. I love that, Michael, for triangle. It's <laughs> a good phrase. That was that was my reaction as well. And I would consider myself also a slight fan of the film. But yeah, all the attention it's gotten did befuddle me. So I would take Ruben Osland out as director of Triangle of Sadness. And of course I'm putting in Charlotte Wells for After Sun the Mm. writer director of our golden brick winning film, Mm -hmm. my favorite film of the year, Adam's favorite film of the year and a construction, a film constructed to make you feel like there was not a director involved at all. And the only way Mm. for that to happen is for the director to have been in complete control Mm -hmm. of not every second, but every microsecond in that movie. So that would be my clear substitution. Charlotte Wells, uh, for after sun. Yeah, usually at this point with these categories, we are talking about the one we're kicking out in terms of it feeling like an egregious nomination. We've said that before here over the years, Josh, and I haven't had any of those yet for 2023. The closest thing to it would be that former Palm Door winner, Triangle of Sadness, sneaking in here for Best Director and for Best Picture. I'm pretty down on it. I think it's a bit of a one-joke movie that is most interesting when it's not on the boat, and unfortunately, it's on the boat for 75% of its runtime. Charlotte Wells, definitely for After Sun. You said it, our Golden Brick winner, my number one film of the year. We never really thought Charlotte Wells had a shot in this category, though after Meskel's nomination for Best right. Actor, you started maybe to wonder. less crazy. Mm-hmm. Right, maybe less crazy to suggest she she should have been nominated because it would have been a shock. But yeah, it's the film of the year, as we have well documented. And if I had to, if I had to go with a more established replacement, I'd have a clear number two. The film, Michael, you mentioned it earlier, but in terms of its acting, it's also the film that gave us the best combination of color, costume, production design, cinematography, and editing this year, Park Chan-wook, decision to leave. He would be in the mix for me as well, way ahead of Ruben Oslin for Triangle of Sadness. So, best picture, finally, 10 nominees, all quiet on the Western Front, Avatar, The Way of Water, Banshees of Inisherin, Elvis, Everything Everywhere, The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, the movie that saved Hollywood and saved theatrical distribution according to none other than steven spielberg triangle of sadness and women 
talking all in the mix. Who will win? Who should win, Michael? First of all, everyone a classic. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, not quite, actually. Uh, boy, tough. I mean, will win. I'm going to go with everything everywhere based on just pure metrics. You know, how many, how many mm-hmm. awards it won over the weekend in the, in the guilds. Um, you know, should win for me. It's well documented. I tars my number one. So out of this group. Um, so I'd go that way and then, uh, we'll talk about the kickouts later. Yeah, Josh, I'm with Michael on this one. So I'll just jump in everything everywhere all at once. I think will win. It seems to be on that trajectory. And Tar, as I said, my number two film of the year, the only movie that beat it, the only movie I'd vote for ahead of it for best picture would be After Sun, sadly, not in the mix. So I know you'll probably go in a different direction with at least one of these two. Yeah, I mean, I like metrics, Michael, you know, fan of analytics, this new era in the NBA. (laughs) Uh I appreciate it. But there's also something called the eye test and the eye test, though, Adam helpfully going through my record of predictions. Yeah, it's going to be the Fablemans, isn't it? (laughs) You know, has has maybe put maybe put this in a new new context and I shouldn't go this route. But the cynic in me thinks the Fablemans is going to win Best Picture, as Adam predicted at the time. Of course, of course. And my reasoning is not metrics involved. It's looking at Spielberg having won three Oscars. Yes, three Oscars. The only Spielberg film to win Best Picture. I think I did my research correctly here. Quick, quick prediction. What do, what do you guys think? The only Spielberg film, only one that won Schindler's Best List. Picture. Schindler's List, yeah. Right, Schindler's yeah. List. So all of the nominations that have been showered on his movies over this decades-long career, he's just got one Best Picture under his belt. And I do wonder if that combined with, yes, movies are great. We love movies. We are the movies. We love to honor movies about the movies is possibly going to push back against the, what is this wild thing I just sat through? It looks like the future and I'm not ready for it. Everything, everywhere, all at once. So I know I'm going against the analytics here, but I'm just going to, I'm going to take a shot. I'm going to say the Fablemans will win. And that way, when everything, everywhere, all at once does win, I'll feel great because it'll feel like an upset to me. It's the one I want to win. Um, it's my favorite film of the nominees. If it does, I'll be incredibly happy and I'll be even happier for Adam because he can, you know, that chart he has next to his bed of our Oscar predictions, <laughs> how far ahead he is on me. Uh-huh. He'll have one more notch for his bedpost. Can I, can I just say in fairness to me, I really expected that if you had asked me before I did the math, Josh, who was at the bottom, I would have said me. I honestly would have. I'm terrible at this. At least I thought I am. But now you're the one who's going with a movie about the movies for the third time in four years. I've got to we'll find theory. out. We'll find out if you're wrong and maybe you'll finally stop picking that way. That brings us to the movie we'd kick out. We got 10 of them here and the movie we'd put in instead, Michael. I would kick out a film called Elvis. <laughs> But you know, right behind it for me, All Quiet on the Western Front. But the, no the, kidding. The, the second least worthy nominee for me this year. But I would kick uh, out Elvis, and I would include Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Hey, which is, yes, got it. Pick. Yes, it's nominated in the animation thing. Big deal. Um, I just think that's the one that's stuck with me the longest, that kind of moved me the most in weird ways. And uh, um I don't mean weird, like unsavory, but you know, I mean like, you know, really unexpectedly, unexpected. 
That's and, it. And, and, and I'm totally with you on Jenny Slate's vocal performance. I mean, I had her in one round just for sport in the National Society voting Jenny Slate for Best Actress just because that's how good that's how good she is in it. Um, so yeah, that's my that's my pick. I love it. The whole show's been worth it, Michael. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for that. You, I would, my should have been nominated though. I'm not going to go that bold. I'm not going to ride Marcel the Shell Shoes on that far. I got to go with After Sun, right? But let me give you a realistic one as well. After Sun, we've praised. Neither of us, I think, as you said, Adam, expected it would get a Best Picture nomination. So the realistic one that was in my top 10, I think was Nope, the latest Jordan Peele film, which, you know, connected with most critics, connected with audiences, for whatever reason, mysteriously did not connect with Academy voters, despite Peel's recent track record with them. So that is one of the oddities of this year's Oscar season. Um, I might slot that one in. And I, you know, I would probably take out Women Talking only because it's the best picture nominee. I know. Hmm. I know, Michael. I failed to connect with it. Um compared to the others just being honest here but i do have to say we just for the day job there we i have a think christian movie club and we had an online gathering over the weekend to talk about all of the best picture nominees all 10 and the conversation it was an hour conversation we spent the majority of our time on women talking because that's the one that people were most provoked by um, the question of forgiveness we spent, you know, like a half hour on. So the more I read about the movie after coming away with my own reaction from other people, talk about it with groups like that, I realize it's more of a me than the movie issue. And because I've loved so much of other Sarah Polly's work, I realize that's probably the case too. So I say that with uncertainty and regret, but just out of honesty, if I'm looking at my ratings from the past year, mm-hmm. it'd have to be women talking. I'll help you out a little bit here. I'll throw you a little bit of a lifeline here, Josh. I'm positive on six of the 10 nominees. I'm mid on Maverick, and there's three I'm just not very high on. The three I like the most overlap with Best Director, Tar, Banshees, and The Fablemans. As I said, pretty meh on Triangle of Sadness. And I did think about women talking here just because it's my single biggest disappointment of the year. Now, part of that is... There was no film I more highly anticipated and expected to be great. I was sure. I already had it penciled in as my number one film of the year when I read about it, and especially being so excited to have another film from Sarah Pauly. But I did think its visual approach and its direction was remarkably inert and not up to its provocative subject matter. But I can bail myself out a little bit here because there's one 2022 movie I just really couldn't wait to end and that was james cameron's avatar the way of water so bye bye jim welcome charlotte wells and after sun my picks nice. let's move on and let's end our oscar discussion here with any final choices do either of you have one or two more that you just want to highlight from categories we haven't talked about that you're kind of rooting for as you gear up for the ceremony on the 12th I can only talk about my regrets that I can't do anything about, okay, because it, it, it's both fruitless and unsatisfying to discuss. So uh, the fact that I'm always obsessed with the film music and the fact that Michael Abel's a wonderful composer, one of our very best right now, who did great work with Jordan Peele on his first film, Get Out, his second film, Us, and the fact that he did not even score a nomination for his work in Nope, which is just as good, if not better, than anything he's ever done, 
uh, makes me wonder what they're listening to out there. You know, I mean, I, I don't, uh, I find that disheartening because he's both old Hollywood classical chops and absolutely fresh sense of orchestration and melody. And he's just great. Um, so I, I, I was bummed. I mean, the, the best original score nominees this year include a not good score for All Quiet on the Western Front, just a drone of a score. Uh, includes Justin Hurwitz, a composer I love, and the work he's done for, you know, Damien Chazelle in the past, I love, and the work for Babylon, I do not love. Is it really worth the nomination? So yeah, there's, there's several examples of that, and it's just, it just hurts that Michael Abels did not get a nomination, let alone a win this year. Yeah, the nope shutout at the Oscars. There's got to be an oral history at some point about what went on there. It's just so, I mean, I realize I have a rooting interest in it, but even if you step back and look, it's kind of mystifying as to what happened. All right. I'll be a little more positive. I'm really excited about the best animated feature category. Only one of the 10 best picture nominees made my personal top 10 of 2022. That was everything everywhere all at once, as I said, but two of the five animated feature nominees did make my top 10. We've talked a lot about Marcel the Shell, but also Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which mm. I think is probably the front runner to win. Um, so I'm actually more invested in this category. I'd be happy if either of those won. Um, sounds like you like Marcel even better, Michael. Um, Pinocchio, maybe I would say I appreciate it a little bit more. Again, both made my top 10, so I'll just be happy there. And yeah, as a, as a big as big of a fan of Pixar as I am, also as a fan of Turning Red, I love that there are other serious players coming in mm-hmm, to this mm-hmm. category and just, you know, shaking things up aesthetically, narratively. It's really exciting. So um, I'm excited about that category and we'll be very pleased when Pinocchio or Marcel hopefully win. I had a similar thought where with animation, I typically feel like. There's one clear winner, the movie that's going to win, and the movie that I really right. love the most, right? And here, to have both of those, Marcel and Pinocchio, in the mix is really gratifying. My two that I'll highlight here are first international film. Close, the Lucas Don't film, doesn't stand a chance against All Quiet on the Western Front, I would imagine, based on the number of nominations it got. But I think if that film from A24 came out a few months earlier and wasn't pushed into early February or late January of this year, a lot more people Mm. would be talking about it. So I'm definitely looking at close and cheering for it, even though it will probably be fruitless. And then documentary feature, a lot of good contenders here. I do like Navalny. I recommended it here on the show, but Fire of Love and especially All the Beauty and the Bloodshed are, are both more enigmatic and more potent docs. And I hope one of those two takes the prize. I don't think that's gonna happen. But I would like to see it if it did go that way. Guys, we did it. Another Oscar special in the can. Can I end with one quiz question for you guys? Just oh, one. boy. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what was the last film that won all three of the major trade awards, SAG, Producers Guild, Directors Guild, and then failed to win Best Picture at the Oscars? What was the last film I'm, to do that? La La Land? I'm going to call Mitchell Beaupre my lifeline. <laughs> I need some help. Well, I did not know this, but I, it was it was in the LA Times over the weekend, but it was Apollo 13. That failed to go on to oh, win the Oscar okay. after winning all of them, and that got beat out by Braveheart. So what does that tell us? Hmm. I don't know. I, I'm, we're done talking tonight. I'm, I'm not yeah. even going to think about it, really. Who knows? Who knows? I'm with you. That's our show.
If you want to keep talking with us, you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd. Adam is at Filmspotting, and I'm at Larson on Film. Over at Filmspotting.net, that's where you can vote. In round one of Filmspotting Madness 2023, we're determining the best film of the 1960s. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to Filmspotting.net slash shop. Filmspotting is listener-supported. Join the Filmspotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad-free. Plus, you get a weekly newsletter and monthly bonus shows. We just dropped our February bonus episode, some 60s madness blind spotting. Josh hadn't seen John Ford's The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. I hadn't seen Martin Ritz' HUD. Both really good films that we had a good time talking about, available now to our Film Spotting family members. And if you are a family member who has one of the membership tiers that allows you to dig into the entire archive, every single episode of Film Spotting, you could find many Oscar specials past with Michael Phillips. You could find reviews of most of the Best Picture nominees. And how about this? This coincidence, Michael, you being on the show as we're taping this. This is the birthday of Chicago-born Vincent Minnelli, one of your favorite filmmakers. You are kidding me. Today is? Would be, today is, would be 120 years young if he was somehow still alive. And Michael, you joined us for at least three films that we talked about as part of our Vincent Minnelli marathon back in the spring of 2018. The first film, Cabin in the Sky. The fourth film, The Bandwagon. And the sixth film, Some Came Running. You can find all of those in the archive. We actually did those as separate episodes, so just do a search for Minnelli Marathon, and you'll find them there, filmspottingfamily.com. Now, is there a membership tier that allows people to only listen to my appearance? <laughs> yes, we're going to work on that. We're and muted. I think a lot of... I think a lot of people would pay for that, actually. <laughs> well, we'll get the engineers on it. In limited release, you can see Palm Trees and Power Lines. This is a coming-of-age drama directed by Jamie Dack based on her 2018 short film of the same name. It premiered at Sundance last January. Dack won the award for directing, editing, and screenwriting in the U.S. Dramatic Competition. In wide release, you can see Creed Three. Michael B. Jordan is back as Adonis Creed, and he is helming this installment of the Creed franchise. We plan to talk about it next week on the show, as well as Madness Round 2. Michael Phillips, we have to take a moment to thank you for your generosity, your amazing insights, and your wit and your charm, as you always bring to film spotting. Thank you so much. Thank and you your Austin Butler to... slander as well, Michael. We'll, we'll <laughs> yeah. rely on you for that going forward. <laughs> Yeah, this was a little. This was kind of a an assault on uh, on one actor this year. <laughs> not not good. I, I feel bad already. I, I now I want. Yeah, to I win. think I really want downloads. I think we're going to title this show. Michael Phillips annihilates Austin Butler. What do you think? V Butler. <laughs> v Butler. Michael Phillips. V Butler. Michael, where can listeners find more of your work? Well, chicagotribune.com is a good place to start. Uh, I actually have an interview with Michael B. Jordan and Jonathan Majors coming up. Uh, I think it's it's online right now. And in nice. And uh, in print this weekend. So that's, uh, that's the best bet. Perfect. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Michael. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. 
For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.